messianic secret that Bill revealed to you. And if you weren't here for the messianic secret that he revealed, well, you got to listen to the CD. I can't reveal it to you. Maybe that's why he got sick, because he revealed the secret. I don't know. But um, Bill did a great job. Um, so we're in Judges chapter 2. We're going to cover about half the chapter today. Next Sunday we'll cover the other half. Um, and then we'll actually get into the first judge the following week, which is Othniel. He's over in the middle part of chapter 3. So those of you who have your Bibles, uh, stand with me. The book of Judges, Judges chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then the book of Judges. Joshua chapter 2, verse 6, we're going to read down through verse 15. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. Helen, you got 20 to go. <laughs> and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And whenever they went out, I'm sorry, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, we come to you, Lord, as uh, here in the 21st century and and Lord, uh, maybe all this seems so far removed for, from us, Lord. Uh, 3,500 years ago, this information, this, these events taking place. And yet, Lord, we're asking you today by your Spirit that you would transport us back, Lord, to help us insert ourselves into this situation. Uh, Lord, that this wouldn't be theoretical or wouldn't be abstract, but Lord, it would be real and Lord, that we would see ourselves in light of a holy God. And Lord, um, as we sing this morning, as we see Israel here, Lord, uh, we're no different. We are prone to wander. Lord, prone to wander from the uh, God we love. And Lord, we're asking you through your word and through your spirit that you would take our hearts and bind and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. Lord, may we be satisfied in you and you alone. May our heart, our affections, our devotions, Lord, be for you. Lord, help us to see the folly of following and serving after other gods. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You all can be seated. Well, you remember that the book of Judges takes place during the period right after Joshua dies and prior to God giving Israel a king. So it takes place roughly between 1390 B.C., and uh, about 1100 B.C., before King Saul, before King David, the end of the book would be probably picking up with, you know, the time of Samuel. Samuel is one of the judges. 
That would be where the book ends. But God had delivered his people from their bondage in Egypt, and they were there for over 400 years, and many of those years were good years, but the last of those years were hard years. They were oppressive years, and Pharaoh was hard on them and and, uh, had them baking bricks and building up his empire, and they were slaves, and they were in bondage, and they were crying out to God to deliver them, and he raised up a deliverer, a rescuer, and his name was who? Moses, exactly. And Moses, God used Moses, this man with a lot of inadequacies, a man who didn't speak well, and God used him greatly to deliver his people from their bondage in Egypt. And Moses led them faithfully for 40 years through the wilderness, through their grumbling, through their complaining, through their murmuring, through their rebellions after rebellions, led them to the border of the promised land. And there he turned the mantle of the mission over to Joshua, and Joshua was commissioned to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, to take the promised land, to drive out all the Canaanites, all those nations that were in the land, that possessed the land that God had given to Israel. And under Joshua, they entered the land. They battled for years throughout the land. They seized the land, they divided up the land, about a 15-year process battling and dividing up the land. But at the end of Joshua's life, they still had not yet fully possessed the land. There were still pockets of Canaanites, there were still remnants of the enemy throughout the borders of Israel. Much work still needed to be done to destroy the Canaanites. And so they still had a mandate. They still had a mission that was given to them at the end of Joshua's life. And really, these first few verses, verses 6 through 10, I guess you could say are a really condensed version of the last chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, where Joshua gathers all the tribes together there at Shechem. And he reminds them, he spends a lot of time reminding them of how faithful God has been to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, and all the mighty acts that God has done for them. And then he reminds them of the mission that they have before them, to to, to finish wiping out, to finish destroying the Canaanites that still live within the land. And then he charges them, choose this whom this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. And you remember what his famous words, as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And if you forget it, you can go up to the devil's punch bowl, and it's actually on one of the little benches up there as you take the hike around the punch bowl, that that statement from Joshua. I don't think Joshua wrote it up there, but it's there. (laughs) It's kind of neat, that little outlook over that little uh, viewpoint there, the vantage point from uh, from that area is beautiful. And so these first few verses... You know, we've already kind of had an introduction to the book, which is chapter 1. But here the narrator gives us kind of a second introduction. And really, I guess you could say it's more than an introduction. It's actually, uh, chapter 2 is really a summary of the entire book of Judges. And the author wants us to know, the narrator wants us to know exactly how the book's going to turn out. And he lays out in this chapter, which we'll look at this week and next week, he lays out the cycle of Israel's spiritual experience during the time of Judges, which we are going to see repeated over and over and over again throughout the book. And you, I, uh, 
fear to tell you that you may get sick of seeing this cycle because you're going to say, really, really, are they boneheads? When will they ever learn? And then you're going to look in the mirror and you'll say, really, really, when am I going to learn, right? It's the same thing. You know, we've been delivered, many of us in this room have been delivered from bondage, haven't we? God has graciously, through Christ, opened our eyes to our need for him. He has saved us. But yet, there are still remnants, pockets, where the flesh rules, where the enemy resides in you and me, right? Much left to be driven out. Many Canaanites in our lives. Many areas of our lives that are not yet surrendered to the Lord. And it is a lifelong process of the Lord sanctifying us and making us into his people. And so too with the children of Israel. And the Lord, we'll talk more about this next week with God's character, but I think you'll just marvel next week at just the character of God. The, the backdrop of this week, Israel's wretchedness, their depravity, their, their sinfulness. But yet on the backdrop of that, and next week we'll look at God's character and how his greatness is magnified. He is so patient and so kind and so compassionate, so long-suffering with his people. Well, and while this section this morning, it, it may be very discouraging to see their, Israel's repeated failures highlighted, it, it, is, it is tremendously encouraged to see God's greatness magnified as we'll look at that next week. But, but prior to the period of Judges... Israel served the Lord, and that's what we read here in verses 6 through 9. And when Joshua had dismissed the people there, when he gathered them at Shechem, and he gave them their instructions and their commission and their mission that they were to do and called them to serve the Lord, when he dismissed the people, the children of Israel went out to his own inheritance to possess the land. So in other words, he went back to their tribal boundaries and back to the mission that was given them, which was there's still some Canaanites there. Destroy them. That's your mission. That's your lifelong mission. Don't rest until that's done. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died when he was 110 years old, having served the Lord all those years. You remember, he, he came out of Egypt. He saw all of that. He saw the ten plagues. He saw the great deliverance. He saw the Passover angel. He saw the Red Sea. He was with Moses during the 40 years. Him and Caleb, you remember, were the only two of that generation who got to go in to the promised land. The rest of them all died out. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance. Wasn't buried in the wilderness, but he was buried within the borders of the promised land. There in Ephraim on Mount Gash. And Joshua, Caleb, and all that generation that were born in the wilderness, they had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. They had seen the Lord part the Jordan for them. As the priests, you remember, had the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, and as they stepped out into the water, God dried it up. And they walked over, and you remember they set up those stones, one for each tribe on the other side, that they might be able to come back and say, in, in times, you know, in times ahead, they'd be able to bring their kids there. And they say, Dad, what are these rocks here for? What's the purpose of this pile, this monument? Well, let me tell you that story, the dads would say to the children. 
Let me tell you what the Lord did for us here. So they crossed the Jordan on dry ground. They go over, and you remember, they were there. They had seen Joshua and the, and the, the generation that were born in the wilderness. They had seen the great walls of Jericho come falling down as the children of Israel marched around and had blown the trumpet on the seventh day. They had experienced God's uh, mighty acts and his saving grace. They, they, had, they had seen God be faithful to them during the conquest of the promised land and battle after battle after battle, and they were taking land, and they were destroying Canaanites. And, and they had some measure of peace at the end of that time with, uh, of, of, of battle. And now they were planting crops, and they had, they had served the Lord during the days of battle, and now they were serving the Lord during days of plenty. They had walked with the Lord a long time. They were a godly generation. They were a generation that loved the Lord and they served the Lord. But something terrible went wrong with the next generation. And maybe this morning one thing I'd like to do is I look at the older generation, the Joshua generation throughout this room. We need you gray hairs and no hairs. We need you to serve the Lord and to love the Lord all the days of your life. We need desperately to see older men and women faithful to the Lord. We need your example. We need your encouragement. We need your help. And they did that. That older generation, they loved the Lord. They served the Lord. And then this other generation, it says, when that generation, verse 10, had been gathered to their fathers, when, what a beautiful way to express death for the believer, right? They had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And the question that comes up, okay, is why? Why did this generation, why did this next generation not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for their fathers, for Israel? And our first thought might be to assume, well, it says, well, they didn't know. They, were, they had no knowledge. They were ignorant of God. No one had ever told them about God. No one had ever told them about the great acts of God. No one had told them about the Exodus. No one had told them about the Red Sea. No one had told them about how God provided water from rocks in the wilderness and manna from heaven as food for them. No one told them about crossing the Jordan on dry ground. No one told them about the walls of Jericho. But that's not the idea that the narrator is trying to convey to us. It's the idea that they knew about God. They had historical information. That's why they set up the rocks at the Jordan. So every time the kids would pass by there, they'd be able to tell them. That's why God commanded them to have all these feasts and celebration. You know, the feast of, uh, of, um, uh, feast of tabernacles. That's God's faithfulness to them while they were in the wilderness. And they would set up booths and have a little camp out with the kids and remind them of how God took care of them through the wilderness. The Passover, the feast of Passover, so that they could remind their kids of the death angel passing over for every home that had the blood of the lamb applied to it. Pentecost, first fruits, uh, unleavened bread, all these different feasts and celebrations. 
So they had all the historical information conveyed to them. But the problem was is that the, that the acts of God, the things that God had done for their fathers, were not precious to them. They did not own them for themselves. They were simply information that was passed on to them. But their hearts were not inclined toward the God that had done them. They had not learned to revere and to rejoice in what God had done for their fathers. In other words, you could say they had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten the good news of God's deliverance and God's love and his care and his compassion, his kindness for his people. And what was the result of forgetting the gospel? Well, verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is, this is the problem of having the information passed along, but not embracing that information in a personal and relational way with the living God. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord their God, their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods. From among the gods of the people who were all around them, they bowed down to them, they provoked the Lord to anger, they forsook the Lord, they served Baal and the asterisk. That was the result of forgetting the gospel, of hearing the news, the good news, but not embracing the good news for themselves. And, and this Baal, you're like, what is a Baal? Baal, it means, it means Lord. It means Master. It means that the Lord God of Israel was not their God, was not their Lord. Someone else replaced the Lord God of Israel, and it was Baal. It was a God of the Canaanite people, Baal. He was their Lord. He was their master. And, and Baal was the supreme. I'll give you a little bit of information on Baal as we go through this. And I'll try to, parents, be as accurate as I can without being too graphic. So uh, I'll do my best with this. But he was the supreme God who was worshipped by the Canaanites. He was the uh, sun god, and he was the storm god. Often he was depicted with a lightning bolt in his hand. He was the... Uh, they believed that Baal was the god of fertility, the sun, the storm, you know, the rains. I mean, obviously, you need you need the sun. They're 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 an agrarian culture. They're a farming community, so they worshipped him as the god of fertility, the one who caused the sun, sh- sun the sun to shine, the one who brought the rain to water the crops. He was the god of fertility. He was the god of fertility, not not only of the field but also the farm and the family. In other words, he was the god they looked to for the crops and for cattle and for children. You wanted fertile crops, he's the God you worship. You want a lot of livestock, he's the God you worship. You want a lot of kids to work the farm in the fields, he's the God you worship. In an agrarian community, he's the supreme God. And according to Canaanite theology, the fertility of field and farm and family depended upon... Uh, the sexual relationship between Baal and his consort, his wife, Ashtoreth, as it says in verse 13, or if you prefer, Mrs. Baal, 
Okay, Mr. and Mrs. Bell. There, there had to be some type of a sexual relationship between them two for uh, fertility to happen in the, in, on the farm and in the field and in the family. And Ashtoreth, she was the moon goddess. But there was a problem. Evidently, there was a coldness in the relationship between uh, Baal and Asher, between Mr. and Mrs. Baal. And they needed some type of stimulation, some type of encouragement so that they might be intimate and release their fertility blessings upon the people, upon their worshipers. So, the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution. Well, that's really a a stretch to try to redeem something that's really wicked, huh? Sacred prostitution. Let's call it that. That's what they called it, sacred prostitution. So the Canaanite man, he would go to the Baal shrine. And keep in mind, these shrines, they would have, you know, um, images, wooden, stone images of Baal and Ashtoreth, which were um, where they depicted uh, Baal the male and Ashtoreth the, 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 the female, his consort, uh, uh, with their grossly exaggerated uh, genitalia. So very, very graphic, very uh, sexual overtones to the whole shrine thing. But anyway, the Canaanite man would go to the Baal shrine there, and he would have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes that was serving there. And the man, the Canaanite man, he would fulfill Baal's role, and the sacred prostitute would fulfill Ashtoreth's role. And it was a way of trying to stimulate and encourage Mr. and Mrs. Baal up in the heavens for them to be intimate. And the idea was that engaging in what they called, this was called, this was their worship. That engaging in this worship, that it would encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to, to do their thing, for a lack of better words, I don't know what to say. And thus, when they did their thing, the, the, the rain, the grain, the wine, and the oil would begin to flow. Freely, farms would be filled with livestock, and homes would be packed, jammed full of kids. So you worshipped your God in that way, you worshipped Baal in that way, and they would, Baal and Ashtoreth would, would release their fertility blessings, and man, you'd have all kinds of crops in the field, right? Because he's the sun god, and he's the rain god. You don't worship him, hey, you end up with California, Right? So, but nothing would happen. There would be no crops. There would be no uh, livestock. There would be no kids. You, you couldn't get, uh, you know, the fertility powers, uh, the fertility blessings wouldn't be released unless, unless the fertility powers were properly worshipped. That was the Canaanite theology. So therefore, this is what we have to do to get them to release their blessings. Thus, it is not hard to imagine at all for any man or any woman in here, especially for any man, to imagine how easily the Israelite men were lured into this idolatry and into this worship, right? Can you imagine the impact that had on homes? Can you imagine the devastation that had on families and on communities? And you think, gosh, well, they are just boneheads. 
I mean, who's going to go worship this concrete, you know, statue with this you know, grossly exaggerated genitalia? Who's going to do that? I mean, that's just crazy thinking, you know. But uh, you and I are easily lured toward idolatry, too. Maybe it's not a shrine with a stone or a wood image, but certainly every one of us in here have mental images of what we think will bring us fulfillment and happiness. You see, that's what they thought. They thought, if I do this, if I worship this God in this way, it's going to bring me fulfillment and happiness. I mean, in that in an agrarian culture, what's going to bring you fulfillment and happiness? Big crops. Lots of livestock and a lot of kids to work the fields and the farm, right? That's going to be your source of happiness because that's going to bring the money in and everything else. So you and I have maybe not images of Baal or Ashtoreth in our minds and wood or stone images, but we've got mental images of what we think will bring us fulfillment and happiness, and, and idolatry is when we have those images in our mind and then we pursue them, we're lured toward them and we pursue them above God. They become first and foremost and primary in our pursuits, in our affections, and in our devotions. You say, well, what is an idol? An idol is anything that we look to for fulfillment and for happiness and for satisfaction that only God can provide. You know, we make idols out of all sorts of things. We're a materialistic and narcissistic, self-serving culture. And so we make idols out of all types of things that, that, that feed our materialistic and, 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 and selfish desires. Careers, man, if I can just get to that next rung on the ladder, right? And we get to that one, if I can just get to the next one, if I can just get that pay raise, right? And if I can just get that job, and, and that becomes our over, over, it becomes the overarching passion of our life is, man, I've got to have that. And if I can just have that, man, I'll be, if I can just get that job, whoo, man, I'll be able to settle down and life will be good. And you get it and you're like, well, you know what? It's really not all it's cracked up to be. I'm still not satisfied. I still want more. I still want something else. You know, money, if I can just, man, if I can just get a job where I make this most money. And we've all done that, right? And we get that job and you're making, making that much money, right? And you're like, whoo, man, I remember when I got a, my first job was 310 an hour. I remember when I was making 335. I'm like, yes, I have arrived. Whoo, man, I, I can buy all the eight-track tapes I want now, right? Man, I can, I can get an eight-track deck, put it in my car, you know, this big clunk, clunk, and you hit, hit the track, clunk, clunk, and change his tracks. Oh, man, it was, but it wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. You know, we can make, a, we can make a, our, our looks can become an idol. They can become our God. And, and we got to, you know, especially in our culture, in our society. You know, you go over across the pond there into Europe, you ever notice they don't take care of their teeth? 
They don't care about the way they look. And no, you get over here and everybody's got, you know, we got our whitening toothpaste and we, we got all this stuff and we got nice white straight teeth. Braces over there, I think they use barbed wire. They don't, they don't, it, they just don't care about that. It's not important to them. But here it is. Image is important to us and looks is important. And you come down here and you run down the 14 and every other sign is, you know, for this procedure to get Botox or to get, you know, laser, you know, scraping, you know, give you a new face or whatever. And, you know, uh, give me a laser to your face. It'll give you a new one. That's for sure. So you got all this stuff that we can get done to make our looks. And that becomes our, our pursuit. If I can just get this procedure, if I can just get nice teeth, I'll be happy. Well, listen, your teeth are going to rot out one day. Then what are you going to do? Well, then I'm going to get nice dentures, right? And the whole thing. You know, comfort becomes one of our gods. It becomes, and we seek comfort above all other things, you know, our, our own comfort. Sex, no different than the Canaanite religion. Sex, thinking that that's going to bring satisfaction, that's going to bring happiness. And then, and then maybe when you get married and you begin to be intimate and you realize, you know what, man, this is great, this is wonderful, but I'm still not satisfied. It's still not enough. There's always something lacking, always something missing. You know, and we can make, we can make, uh, uh, our spouse can become an idol. We're, we're pursuing them for our fulfillment, trying to fix them, make them into this image that we have in mind. Listen, there's nothing wrong with working on your marriage, but then, but then we read every book that there is about marriage because I want the perfect marriage. If I get the perfect marriage, I'll be happy. Well, you're just not going to get it because you're married. To a sinner, and you're a sinner. I'm not saying don't stop pursuing a good marriage, but have realistic expectations. Children can become an idol. They can become a god. And we put them on a pedestal that they're going to somehow bring us happiness and, and satisfaction. Have you ever realized that they bring heartache too? You know why? Because they're like you and me. They're sinners. Our health, I do, no matter what cost, I'm going to pursue good health and to be pain free. And, and, and that becomes our passion. It becomes our pursuit more important than, than serving the Lord materialism and happiness. We, we make happiness. You know, it's in our constitution, right? We've got a, a, a constitutional right for the pursuit of happiness. I don't think it's a biblical right. It may be a constitutional right, but it's not a biblical right. I think God is less concerned about our happiness than he is about his own glory. And he knows that when you and I are satisfied in him, that's when we're most satisfied, period. We can make approval of others, pleasure. All those things can become idols to us when we're looking to that for the fulfillment, to bring us fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and happiness that only God can provide. You say, well, how do I know what my idol is? Just fill in the blank. If I could have just blank, I would be happy. We've all got it. If I could just, for me, it's comfort. Comfort is my God. That, that we've all got them. Let's, let's, don't sit here and lie about it. Calvin said that the, the human heart is a, is a factory of idols. We produce them left and right. We've, we've got them. And I'm sure I've got more than that. I know that that's just one of the big ones. He's huge. And I want my comfort.
I don't know what yours is. And I don't really don't want to know it. I've got my own to deal with. But what's the problem with idolatry? Well, in verse 11, the first problem is God says, what, what does he say there? The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord when they served the bells. God says it's evil. But worse than that, let me tell you what he says in Exodus chapter 20 there in the, when he gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He says, you shall serve no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is the water, water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's what God says about idolatry. God made the human heart to love him and to love him supremely above all things. And to be satisfied and, and to be fulfilled in his eternal perfection. You know, you know, listen, you know all the stuff that's going on in Ferguson, right, Missouri? And the stuff that's going on in Baltimore and it's starting to kind of, you know, wane just a little bit. And all the racial tension and all the racial inequality, all, all the racial hierarchy, especially in, in, in Baltimore that's taking place that they're frustrated with, the people are frustrated with. And, and, uh, um, uh, the injustice and the abuse that's taken place at the hands of the police and, and all of that. Now, listen, I'm not talking about the thugs who are there who are just, I don't care, they're in every community. They're, they're just looking. They don't care what the issue is. They're just looking for an opportunity to act a fool and just to tear up something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the people who are really challenged with the, with the real issues there. But, but at the root of it all, and, and I realize I'm minimizing this greatly, but, but at the root of all that, besides all the other peripheral issues there, at the root of their struggle within the communities. You know what they really want when they're crying out for racial equality, when they're crying out for a, a, a tearing down of this racial hierarchy that's taking place even within the black community or the white community, a racial you know, structure? When, when, they're, when they're crying out against all the injustice that's taking place there, at the root of all that, the, the cry of the human heart, whether it's Ferguson or whether it's Baltimore, it, it, it's a cry for the kingdom of God. It's a cry for a king, a perfect king, a righteous king. That's the cry. They don't know that's what they're crying oftentimes. They don't know that's what they're asking for. They want perfection here in a, in a fallen world, and they're going to get it. But these are great gospel opportunities. Because if they got a little bit of justice for a while, it wouldn't be enough. If they got racial equality for a little while, it wouldn't be enough. But what they need and what we all need is a day where the king of kings come and where there is no Jew or Gentile, there's no black or white. There's no male or female, but we're all one in Christ, sitting under the, the hand of a righteous God, a perfect God. That's what we're all crying for. That's where perfection is. That's where satisfaction, that's where fulfillment is found. And yet we're looking to all these other things to satisfy that to 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 soothe us and it's not to be found there there is room in our heart for one predominant affection one predominant devotion and room for one only now that doesn't mean that there aren't many things that we love listen i, I love my wife above all earthly things i love her more today than i've ever loved her and I pray the Lord will help me to do that to the day I die. I love my kids dearly. 
My grandchildren are precious to me. I love my work. I love working in my backyard. But at the end of the day, listen, I know this to be true, that my wife, one day her eye will die, and let's say she precedes me in death. I pray that the Lord is, I love him more than I do her. One day, my children, the Lord could take them at any time. He could take my grandchildren, God forbid. He could take my backyard. Oh, that would be a tragedy. <laughs> we can have all these different loves, and they're, they're temporary gifts that God gives us. They're his creation, meant to be enjoyed by his creation, so that the praise might roll up to him, but that the praise wouldn't, wouldn't stop in the creation, that in these temporary joys, that we wouldn't stop there, but we would thank him, and we would realize he is the giver of all good things. We can only have one predominant affection, though we may have many loves. One of them must have the controlling influence. Scripture says you cannot serve two masters. And that, that is the struggle of the Christian life. Bringing all these idols into submission to the Lord and saying, I see them for what they are. They're, uh, they're gifts, temporary gifts that you've given to me to enjoy for a short time. But ultimately, you're the one who never leaves me nor forsakes me. You're the, you're the eternal one. My satisfaction is joy, and joy is to be found in you. Well, that next generation... They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of bondage. And they followed other gods. And you know what? I'm going to stop there. I've got a lot more to cover. Because Tim's going to come up and lead us in communion. Jason's going to come up and lead us in a song. To, uh, because this is probably a good... Uh, let, let me leave off with this. And we'll talk more about, and probably f- more fittingly so on Mother's Day, we'll talk about the problem with the next generation with what happened to the children of the parents of the previous generation. And don't come next Sunday thinking, oh, man, he's going to beat me up about my parenting. I'm not going to do that because I'm a parent too, and I need to be encouraged. And I know you need to be encouraged. but, But let me leave you with this. That generation, they did not know the Lord. And is it any wonder? In the Old Testament, as I said, we've seen we see how God commanded them to have these annual celebrations, didn't he? Had all these annual celebrations, all these feasts, for the people together, for the tribes together, and for them to recount, for the priests to recount to them, and for the parents to recount to the children all the great things that God had done for them, going all the way back to the Exodus and God's gracious rescuing them from their bondage and his continued involvement in their life. And then you get to the New Testament. And God commands his people in the book of Hebrews to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We don't come to church because you have to. We come to church because we want to. And we come because, you know what, we are people that are prone to amnesia. I don't know about you, I forget. Not only do I forget names, places, I forget where I'm driving on the road if I'm talking. I forget a lot of stuff. But I forget God's goodness to me.
I need to come to church every week as often as I possibly can so I can be with God's people to remind how he's working in your life and your life and my life. And so I can hear the songs sung and the words and I can meditate upon them and I can think about how rich our history is and our God's involvement in our lives. And I need to hear the word of God taught and, and, and ministered to my own soul. So that I can be reminded, because I'm a people like Israel. I, I am prone to forgetfulness. I am prone to amnesia. And then, that's why he tells us, don't forsake the assembly. It's not like, daggone it, you be in church every Sunday. It's like, let me tell you why you need to come. Because this is who we are. We're, we're just like Judges chapter 2. We're just like that generation. We're people that are prone to forget the Lord and what he's done. And in the community, when we gather like this and we talk about God and we sing to God and we sing about God, we're encouraged and reminded, oh, yeah, you know what? He is good. Oh, yeah, you know what? He has done this in my life. Oh, yeah, you know what? He's been with me in the, in the, in the times of plenty and in the times of need. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that. And then he also tells us, he gives us this, this thing we're getting ready to do called the Lord's Supper or Communion where we come together and we remember how God delivered us from our bondage through Christ. Do you know why we do this? Not as a ritual, not as a time filler. You all know I can fill the time. This is not a time filler. And it's not a snack because there's not much there. And it's not a good snack. We do this because... One, he commanded us to, but he commanded us to do that because he knows that we're a people that are prone to forgetfulness. We're a people that are prone to amnesia, and we need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us so that in the midst of these battles with all these idols that we've got that are luring us and drawing us to, to try to get us to give our affections to them, that we can be reminded that uh, the only place to be satisfied is right here is in Christ, in Him alone. He's the only one who will never leave us nor forsake us. All these other things will leave us high and dry. So with that, Jason, would you come up? Tim, uh, Bill, bring your guys up and begin to pass out.